Welcome to a special episode of Scuttlebutt. Thank you for joining us. Today, William and I sit down with the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Marine Corps Gazette and Leatherneck Magazine and Vice President of Professional Development, Colonel Chris Woodbridge, to talk about current events in the Ukraine-Russian war and the current state of things in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. Like with our other War Zone Update segments, there is no shortage of media outlets, news organizations, and social media influencers rushing to weigh in on these conflicts and provide a hot take. As much as we don't want to add to the noise, it seems like it would be irresponsible to ignore what is going on, especially as hundreds of Marines head into these areas while thousands more stand by awaiting orders to go. We fully admit that we at the MCA are distanced from these conflicts, not only in proximity, but in the kind of information we have access to. What we try to do in this episode is avoid the rhetoric and give a strategic, operational, and tactical assessment of the way we understand the events as they are unfolding from the perspective of people who have a decent amount of time operating war zones in this region and the scholarship of military history. Hopefully we can help move the conversation beyond the black and white narrative of good versus evil and highlight the extreme complexity of what's going on in the world right now while acknowledging the tragedy of it all. Here's our conversation with Chris Woodridge. Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am William. I'm here today with Vic. Hey. And today we are going to do a update on the changing character of war as we are good stewards of pro- uh, professional military education. And today we have with us the editor of the Marine Corps Gazette, Colonel Chris Woodridge, to talk about the updates of the situations going on in Ukraine and uh, the uh, Gaza Strip. Well, Colonel, how are you today? Great. Thanks, William. All right, so let's kick it off. So starting off with Ukraine, uh, as we noticed, this past year has been very eventful. We've seen counteroffensives going on by the Ukrainians and more recently by the Russians. So uh, in the past few months, how has these offensive changed the character of war or has the character of war changed? So I'd like to I'd like to jump on that first of all, and it's and it's not a uh, it's not an indictment, but uh, an awful lot of uh, of uh, scholars, pundits, opinioneers uh, point to this change in the character of war. Or uh, I I think it's really um, uh, it's 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 less of a change than an evolution and emergence. Emergence meaning uh, uh, characteristics or factors that heretofore have not been fully recognized or fully realized on the battlefield, starting to show their uh, capabilities and limitations. Um, so, you know, we've, we've talked in the past, I think the first time we sat down uh, uh, almost two years ago and started talking about Ukraine, we talked about how uh, the nature of war uh, remains constant and has not changed and nothing that we're seeing today, whether it be in Ukraine, Gaza, or elsewhere, uh, indicates that the nature of war as a as a uh, a life and death struggle, violent struggle between two independent wills, um, uh, has changed at all. The character of war, as defined by the methods, tools, technologies, approaches to warfare um, at the strategic, operational, and tactical levels, is constantly evolving and and emerging, and in some cases. Uh, the emergence or the the changes in the character are are laminated or overlaid on uh, very primitive means of warfare. Um, so again, that that struggle between independent wills, uh, that that life and death struggle, can be enacted with everything from from rocks and clubs up through uh, directed energy weapons and and autonomous or semi-autonomous drones and loitering munitions. And that can all happen and does happen routinely at the same time. Well, I was thinking we talked uh, a little while back about the India-China border. Yes. They're up there in that that mountaintop where they literally go at each other with rocks and sticks. Rocks and sticks because they've they've agreed to a, 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 a treaty uh, that removes other technology, other weapons from the battlefield. Um, but the nature of that warfare is, is still the same. It's, it's still the same. Um, uh, what we're seeing, and, and to, to William's uh, uh, point about Ukraine, um, so what we're seeing is, is convergence of a, of a few different factors. Um, in terms of the, 
character of war uh, as as land warfare as defined characteristically really since 1914 uh, what you're seeing is the uh, convergence of defense in depth with attempts at a breakthrough battle mm-hmm. so uh, right now uh, oh and and the inevitable effects of uh, um, the region in terms of uh, of weather and the ability to do things so winter is coming again uh, the season for uh, attempting breakthroughs uh, uh, large-scale uh, offensive uh, operations offensive maneuver is largely coming to an end um, uh, again just defined by the effects of of weather seasonal weather and, and the terrain in that area but also the effects of the uh, uh, the the battlefield technologies being employed. So what are we seeing? You're seeing both sides uh, essentially investing or or fortifying defensive lines, uh, which are really consistently recognizable all the way back to uh, uh, Cold Harbor and Petersburg in the American Civil War here in the Eastern Theater, certainly defined the Western Front in World War One, and created the military problem of how to defeat a defense in depth. Um, and what time has demonstrated, and, and really various techniques throughout the subsequent years of conflict, uh, World War Two and after, is that the uh, the solution to that military problem, the military solution to defense in depth is a breakthrough battle campaign enabled by combined arms, fire, and maneuver. Um, now, that, that sounds easy. That's a nice bumper sticker. But there's so much involved in executing that, both in terms of the, uh, uh, the weapons systems available and... Uh, Historically, we've seen many, many times that technology will be the solution to all of this. The, air, the aircraft will be the solution, and strategic bombing will defeat the defense in depth because we can get behind the enemy's prepared lines, bomb his uh, military capabilities, bomb his population into submission, and we'll just walk all over. And it's got a 100% failure rate. Precisely. Yeah. It, it does not work. Um, it, it creates, you know, massive destruction, casualties, uh, uh, civilian and military, uh, but, but operationally and tactically, it does not work. Um, we have in the past looked to uh, uh, varieties of technologies and techniques to enhance maneuver, airborne operations to include glider operations, later heliborne operations, vertical assault as ways to again, uh, uh, solve that military problem of, of defense in depth. Um, again, m- very mixed, mixed results when not executed as part of a holistic combined arms fire and maneuver campaign. Um, and when I'm talking about a combined arms campaign, um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about tactical combined arms. Uh, tactical combined arms... As, as we know from study, is, is relatively simple to explain, but, but as in all things in, uh, in combat, difficult to execute. Uh, and that is uh, using the complementary effects of different weapon systems, direct fire, indirect fire, aircraft, uh, uh, smoke, etc., uh, to put your enemy uh, who is occupying uh, uh, fixed defensive positions or mobile defense into the dilemma, the choice where if you defend against the effects uh, of one weapon system, you expose yourself to the effects of the other to the point where you have no uh, uh, viable uh, decisions other than uh, surrender, uh, uh, run away, or die in place. Uh, you know, su- surrender, withdraw, or retreat, and, and die in place. Um, the same factors are evident now the changes in the character have largely been brought about by um, some uh, emergent weapons technologies, uh, you know, specifically uh, uh, the use of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, the ability to exploit uh, vulnerabilities in enemy communications and command and control systems, 
the use of uh, uh, novel technologies, uh, drones, uh, unmanned or, uh, or uh, semi, semi-autonomous drones, uh, loitering munitions, etc. But none of that replaces the, the underpinning technologies of combined arms to include armored, armored firepower, tanks and other armored vehicles, uh, 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 the, the value of uh, prepared deliberate defenses in depth, trenches, bunkers, uh, and not single single lines of resistance, but multiple lines of resistance with everything that's required uh, tactically and operationally for the uh, uh, troops executing uh, that defense to use those prepared lines deliberately in order to uh, attrite the enemy. And ultimately what we're talking about, if you were to characterize uh, the war between uh, Ukraine and Russia right now is it is a war of attrition. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I was thinking when you were mentioning um, these facets of maneuver war, combined arms fight, is at the end of the day, you still have surfaces and gaps. That doesn't go away. And um, with technology, you maybe can make the argument, well, you can create more gaps by exploiting certain um you know, uh, I don't know, whatever it would be, um, things that are exploitable. Right. Be it this, you know, right. uh, civilian population through social media and information campaigns or uh, technology or ill-prepared troops or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it doesn't go away. You're just sort of exploiting and creating maybe a gap that you can exploit, but then it's incumbent upon – that offensive force to then maneuver into that gap. If you don't call it right, if you hit a surface, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. At that, that point. That's exactly right. And so when you when you look at this, and and interestingly enough, some of the best examples come out of the uh, uh, the Eastern Theater, the Eastern Front uh, fights between the former Soviet Union and Nazi Germany in World War II. Um, those were operational level, so army, army, numbered army, army group level uh, uh, combined arms campaigns. Uh, they were a war of attrition. Uh, the weather had significant impacts. And uh, ultimately, you saw two, um, two offensive models emerge and two um, uh, correlated defensive models emerge. The offensive models are the penetration, uh, which Vic, Vic sort of just described. And again, at an, at an operational level, talking about cores and numbered armies as penetration and blocking forces, cores and numbered armies as the exploitation force, attacking in depth uh, and, and furthering that penetration uh, behind the defensive belt. Um, on the on the counter or correlated counter to that, um, you had the uh, variety or a variety of terms used: the uh, uh, the battle of annihilation, the 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 kettle style battle of allowing that group to penetrate, but then uh, first dedicating your combat power to closing Alexander, the penetration yeah, it, uh, and and isolating that penetrated yeah. force. Uh, and closing in a battle of encirclement, mm-hmm. all right? Um, you know, how to fight when you're surrounded. Uh, Bastogne, Battle of the Bulge is one example. Um, Korea, uh, what, what occurred uh, after the, uh, with the withdrawal from Chosen for, for the Marine Corps, um, a, a touchstone battle of how do you fight when you're surrounded? And how do you, as again, operationally at that at that uh, core and above level of tactics, how do you fight to relieve a surrounded force? Um, those are high-level, high-level maneuvers for planners and commanders. Um, think about fire support coordination alone mm-hmm. uh, when you're trying to deconflict and coordinate fires 360 degrees and a relieving force coming in, potentially having to coordinate fires 360 degrees around the isolated force. So you saw that emerge, um, but we have not seen that emerge in uh, in Ukraine uh, yet, um, which, uh, 
you know, there, there are a variety of factors. The will to fight and the, and the desire to resist uh, are, are, are really not there. I think there's capacity issues. Again, you're not seeing the same uh, uh, level of troop commitment uh, uh, on either side for, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the other, the other model that emerged in, in terms of this competition between defense and depth and uh, 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 combined arms, fire and maneuver or breakthrough battle is what was referred as the attack on a broad front. Uh, meaning rather than a single point of penetration, um, when, uh, again, in, in attrition warfare, uh, the means, the capabilities exist and the capacity exists to attack across the broadest front of that defense as possible in order, in order to either create or find areas for lower level penetrations and cause the entire line to collapse. Uh, and so that appears on a, on a smaller scale. What has, uh, has been going on in Eastern Ukraine right now. Um, but again, capacity wise, it's, it's certainly been short of decisive for both sides. It, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that leads to the next question is, as we noted the past year, you know, both sides have made modest might be a generous term, but some maybe tactical advances like with Bakhmut, the uh, long way to Ukrainian counteroffensive made mild gains, but no strategic impact. And now as of recently, probably as we speak, Russia is trying to regain the initiative before the winter and is, is getting mauled over pretty well. Uh, so why is it difficult for both sides to achieve offensive maneuver? How can this be changed and what will be required in order to, to, to make those changes? The, uh, I think the, I think they would if they could, but I think right now both sides have uh, uh, limitations on their capacity, the amount of combat power available, um, and and their uh, respective capabilities. Would you what, say they've culminated? Would this be a culmination point? Temporarily, yes. Okay. I mean, no, you know, uh, a, uh, an ultimate culmination point is is defeat, victory. Right. Um, what I think we're going to see is uh, ongoing stalemate, which is the third option operationally. You either win, lose, or it or it goes into a a, a stalemate. And I think we're going to see protracted stalemate until one of two things happens. Um, you know, one one side or the other uh, uh, simply uh, expresses willingness and ability to negotiate, um, or there is some uh, significant change in, uh, again, battlefield fielded capabilities and capacity, um, capacity, number, number of troops involved, which are sort of static on both sides. And the Ukrainian, Ukrainian military is certainly static mm -hmm. um, on the Russian side, despite uh, their, uh, uh, their population, um, they're not capable of fielding the overwhelming numbers of uh, quality, uh, meaning capable troops, uh, to really make a difference. That's the capacity piece. The capability piece is what, what uh, uh, other weapon systems can influence this. Um, recent, recent deliveries and employment of longer-range missile capabilities coming from U.S. and NATO allies to Ukraine um, can make some difference, but only if integrated into right. that cohesive combined arms campaign. So the fact that you can reach out much deeper and potentially uh, target uh, more valuable uh, uh, military targets with precision um, is fine, but in and of itself, it's not decisive. Mm -hmm. It has to support some other penetration breakthrough battle, uh, either either a limited penetration or a focused penetration or uh, some form of greater attack across a broad front. Um, what's, uh, you know, the other the other uh, elements in play here, uh, again, are, are, you know, national will. And I, I almost I almost take those those off the table for for two reasons. Number one, Ukrainians have have demonstrated national will to retain their sovereignty mm -hmm. um and and they've garnered uh, uh 
significant international support because of that. Um, in the uh, Russian side, uh, their ability to control their population, which has been refined over uh, over you know, almost a hundred years, it's an aged wine. Exactly, <laughs> it's very it, and 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 there's also some Russian Russian nationalism involved there as well. Um, but uh, where the where the real power of the old Soviet Union uh, was was involved and and uh, World War II was certainly the example of this is the ability to mobilize the non-Russian populations of their of their nation state um, and bring in uh, uh, volunteers and conscripts from throughout the Central Asian republics, the Caucasian republics, elsewhere uh, to to build this multi-million person uh, force. Um, which proved decisive again in, in defeating Germany in, in World War II, when combined with uh, with U.S. and Allied air power. So um, we're not seeing that. So it's just short of that. Is there sufficient control of the population to maintain uh, the political will of Russia? Has yet to be seen. Has yet to be seen. Um, now, what uh, other things might uh, Ukraine and her allies do? To influence that, um, you know, to date have not borne any fruit. Uh, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, trying to create some form of resistance uh, in inside the Soviet Union, um, we we saw what happened the last time somebody attempted that with uh, the former director of the Wagner Group, and uh, right. didn't didn't uh, you know again, past masters, past masters of maintaining population control, uh, so. Um, Probably not a factor there. So with the war uh, having recently got, had its 600-day uh, anniversary and approaching the second year, uh, time is a factor. Which side does time favor, and how can we expect things to go forward, and is there a, a, a viable endgame? Um, so I don't know that time necessarily favors either side um, because one of the things that is occurring in time are going to be national elections in this country. Mm -hmm. And the the reality is that the U.S. leadership across two administrations in uh, really leading uh, uh, allies and partners to support Ukraine materially, uh, recognizing that we're not, we're not fielding forces uh, to fight alongside them, um, is a political decision within this country. And at the national level, um, it will certainly play to one degree or another uh, into uh, what happens uh, during this next election cycle. Uh, so uh, what that means is, now, does that favor Ukraine? Probably not, or or it does, mm -hmm. depending on, on how this, well, sure. this breaks. <laughs> because if, if, uh, Russia, excuse me, if Russia gambles on one side winning and it does not, Right. Then you've essentially left a good portion of your force sitting in trenches with no plan B. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so uh, that also may be driving some of the uh, the operational pause that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, dig in, improve your positions, make small tactical level incursions. Uh, and see where this goes back in Washington D.C. Uh, until until we have some resolution there, then uh, potentially look to negotiation, look to some uh, more or less, uh, and then we get into the question of how this you know the, a path towards resolution, uh, you know either either uh, uh, a in you know, one side blinking. Mm -hmm. In a war of attrition, and saying, "Okay, we'll we'll go to the negotiation table and accept uh, a ceasefire, and then uh, withdraw uh, to either side of some geographic features, and then continue to negotiate some more or less acceptable form of partition." Um, you know, recognizing the uh, uh, actual or uh, or engineered. Uh, uh, desires of the population in the Donetsk and eastern uh, Ukraine uh, to either be part of Russia or not, 
um, and 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 work it out diplomatically that way. Not unlike uh, and and you know how long can a situation like that last? Look at Korea. I'm about to say going on what seventy years. Yeah, yeah. Look at Korea. So that situation, the idea of a of a border controlled potentially by uh, other entities, uh, the EU, NATO, the UN, uh, and uh, uh, a uh, ongoing ceasefire or armistice. Uh, you know, that's that's entirely possible. Certainly not desirable. I think at this stage for either combatant um, because they to a degree, both still think they can win mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and individuals or nations who believe or think that they can win generally don't stop fighting. Sure. Don't stop fighting. So um, that's uh, sadly the way, uh, the way this, I think, will continue to play out. And some of the bigger questions uh, that, and this may be a, a theme that we, uh, we kind of crack open here and unpack a little bit, is from the U.S. perspective, um, regardless of how that is resolved, what's next? Yeah. What's next? Um, where is uh, where is the investment in Ukraine? Where are and what is the uh, long term uh, uh, diplomatic and economic measures in uh, dealing with Russia, uh, particularly with regards to energy? Uh, and and so. You know those those what's next questions can help drive what what you do about this down at the at the uh, you know the lower tactical levels of uh, of the Marine Corps um, probably the uh, uh, the key takeaways here uh, is once again the role the Marine Corps plays strategically in U.S. defense uh, through their ability to be present. Uh, at least periodically, uh, in multiple locations, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know every every exercise that goes on in uh, in Norway, where we have prepositioned assets, every uh, uh, bilateral or multilateral training uh, exercise that that we do with naval expeditionary forces uh, in Scandinavia in the Baltics matters. Mm-hmm matters because it is demonstrating actual presence. Uh, and uh, that is a uh, actual presence of uh, relevant, uh, leg- or legitimately capable forces is an underpinning of deterrence. It's one of the ways that, uh, that deterrence works. Um, if, uh, uh, if any of those pieces are, are not there, i.e., you know, virtual presence, otherwise known as actual absence, um, <laughs> which we've seen the effects of sure. m- multiple times in the last uh, uh, five to ten years. Um, presence, but of a force lacking relevant capabilities to the fight, does not work as mm-hmm. deterrence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately, uh, and this is the hardest to quantify, I think, is demonstrated national will the will to actually fight and deter. So um, those, those I think, are, uh, are key pieces of the Marine Corps' contribution to the joint force and national defense in these types of environments. Absolutely. I think at the strategic level, when we look at what does the Marine Corps, who, for the most part, we operate within that operational tactical I think where we make a lot of money on, at the strategic side, like you're saying, sir, is as, as we look at a potential armistice or a prolonged war and NATO's resolve, we're already seeing, you know, folks are getting a little tired of this. And now, obviously, with the next thing we'll be talking about with Gaza is that there's a lot of – it's very easy to get distracted, especially for an organization that really sort of coalesced around this one incident after having – been almost atrophied for quite some time that if as long as we can continue to participate with nato allies and keep them keep their keep them focused on the lane uh, that will play huge on our strategic partnerships if we start to pull away from some of these bilateral multilateral exercises i think we're going to see those fissures start to really start, start no that's to, absolutely yeah. correct and and the other thing to bear in mind in all of this um 
you know, the, the ultimate uh, um, asset of the United States, both diplomatically and militarily, comes down to money. It comes down to spending money, um, which, you know, in most recent years has almost always become deficit spending. So our willingness and ability to uh, pay for a uh, uh, plurality of the munitions and weapons systems going to Ukraine in order to relieve our NATO and EU partners from reaching unacceptable levels of their own commitment mm-hmm. costs money. That's, that's what we bring to the fight, um, bankrolling this effort. Um, and we will uh, begin to see, you know, diplomatically, and, and history bears this out, when, when the United States has a strategic objective of preventing two sides from fighting or getting them to stop fighting or getting them to come to the negotiating table, we pay them. <laughs> we pay them uh, in, in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. We pay them through aid packages, military and otherwise. We pay them through uh, economic development packages. Uh, we pay them through forgiveness of debt. Uh, in other yeah. words, if they've already, if they're already in the hole to us, we'll, we'll just, you know, forgive that and write that off. Um, and so we will continue to see that, but recognize again that that creates tension in our own political body here uh, yeah, in the United States. Yeah. Um, and and you know you can you can point to what's going on right now uh, in the House of Representatives as an outgrowth of exactly that political tension here at home. It comes down to paying the bills. Uh, uh, who, what money is committed to what, where the debt ceiling goes, all of those uh, political, economic, and social factors back here are pressured by how we do diplomacy, how we do the, uh, uh, the other instruments of national power, mm-hmm. information, the military side, economics overseas. All of it drains our, our resources, um, and then we have to recapitalize raising taxes, cutting spending in other areas, raising an artificial limit like a debt ceiling. And so that is more or less politically acceptable to our own population, which will ultimately determine where this goes overseas. Well, that's a good transition to uh, the next uh, topic of conversation as we move away from Ukraine to now uh, the Gaza Strip with Israel. So to sort of rehash some of the major points, we... uh, over the past few weeks, we've seen Hamas uh, conducting attacks with surprising ingenuity. How has Hamas's actions uh, changed the character of war, specifically, specifically relating, relating to insurgencies? So, uh, again, I don't know that there's a particularly, if we want to talk about insurgency and counterinsurgency, not, not a, a drastic change to the character of war because most insurgents, terrorists, uh, are very clear about their willingness to use all means necessary. Um, you know, witness uh, uh, flying commercial aircraft into buildings, um, killing thousands of people, innocent non-combatants, um, in order to make a political point. Um, and so, uh, again, looking at uh, uh, Gaza or Hamas's terrorist attacks out of Gaza into Israel. Yes, there are some uh, some novel tactics used. Um, in some ways, in other ways, it's the it's the same old it's just approach. The second, yeah, same song, different verse. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, attacking uh, civilian population, and and in in a lot of these, uh, you have to kind of look through these lenses of to what end, and then how do the tactics employed, no matter how. No matter how uh, innovative or, or novel, um, no matter how costly and bloody, no matter how barbaric, depending on how you want to characterize this, um, how does that serve the the strategic end? Um, and then also from the from the you know the opposite perspective, uh, what 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 led to this? What flaws or failures? Uh, may may have led to this, not not in terms of um, the the environment, but in terms of specific 
uh, uh, military or defense functions, like sure. intelligence, uh, and what type of intelligence. Um, and I, I think it's worth caveating or defining our terms. And when we say these failures in these um, pillars of uh, military and state operations, we're not talking about someone napping on the job. No. We're talking about extremely complex systems of information and data, of collection, of employment, where something in the chain wasn't necessarily firing all cylinders or was misinterpreted or something along that nature. We're not right. implying negligence. No, no, no. Right. There's this is this is not uh, uh, not that type of flaw or right. failure at right. all. Um, in some cases, and this is true of the United States as well, at all levels of defense and the and the uh, the joint force, uh, it's it's a question of uh, how much you invest and how much you rely on certain means mm -hmm. or disciplines of intelligence. Um, and the, in, in, in many ways, you can, you can kind of point to the same uh, 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 gaps or, or shortcomings. And those really rely in or, or rest in the human intelligence and the lowest technologies. Um, when you invest significantly in signals intelligence, cyber intelligence, imagery intelligence, collecting technical data, whether that's flying drones and satellites to take pictures, whether that's facial using recognition facial recognition, yeah, uh, 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 biometrics, right. whether that's investing in um, exquisite technologies to uh, exploit the electromagnetic spectrum, listening to cellular other tele or, uh, uh, telecommunications, uh, uh, being able to exploit the, the radio spectrum, looking for the technical solutions at the expense of very low-tech human yeah, solutions. Um, so we can point to this uh, uh, coordinated, very innovative terrorist attack by Hamas into Israel, um, using everything from, you know, paragliders to uh, tunnel, systems. tunnel systems. It takes a lot of work to plan and coordinate and put that sort of operation together. Anytime human beings work together, they communicate. If you're relying on them communicating somewhere in the electromagnetic spectrum where you can exploit it, you may wind up missing something mm -hmm. by virtue of not being able to literally read their mail have someone listening in, participating in the conversation, who can be exploited uh, as a source to give you that information as warning that something's going on. Mm -hmm. um, those indications and warnings from the human perspective uh, are going to remain a critical shortfall as this, as this fight emerges. Uh, and what I mean by that specifically. So let's talk about the, the tactics employed. If there was if there was one tactical measure uh, that Hamas is employing that has changed calculus uh, on the battlefield, it was taking hostages. The fact that you have uh, uh, approximately, you know, I think the count is 199 uh, Israeli and, and third country to include American hostages being held by Hamas somewhere, somewhere. We think perhaps somewhere in the Gaza Strip, but we don't know that. And we can't know that until it is confirmed by multiple intelligence sources. Um, and oh, by the way, that is also the critical, uh, uh, really non-negotiable first step uh, of any employment of any nation's uh, uh, exquisite special operations capabilities. Um, so, yes, we have, and the Israelis have, and the United Kingdom has, and France and Germany and other nations have uh, what we would call Tier 1 Special Operations Forces who are um, uh, highly trained and ready to conduct uh, 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 hostage rescue missions, in extremis hostage rescue missions. Um, but... The key requirement for that is, again, the, uh, the best target location data available. 
And by the best, I mean confirmed through right. multiple intelligence sources. Um, getting that takes time and may not even be feasible when you don't have the means to exploit that human side of intelligence. Um, well, so, and then there's windows, right? So if we were to take um, the hostage rescue in, in Nazaria, that happened very, very quickly. And so there wasn't uh, – we didn't allow them to utilize their networks. Right. Now we're coming up on eight days, ten days, fourteen days. It gets almost ex exponentially more complicated. And That's, more correct. That's correct. That's um, correct. So yes, we can have the cap. We have the capabilities. Um, yes, we can put the capabilities in uh, uh, advantageous, relevant locations to respond quickly. Um, but and I, I strongly encourage everyone to. Uh, uh, to read Admiral McRaven's book, Special Operations or Spec Ops, uh, because he does a, a superb job of laying out the the template, if you will, of what what factors make a special operation successful or not. And having that uh, target location, having the ability to rehearse mm -hmm. on uh, often mock-ups of the specific right. target location uh, are among those factors that that determine success and failure. Um, and uh, you know, recently, people have, uh, for for natural reasons, pointed back to uh, Entebbe in in the 1970s as a Israeli hostage rescue. If you if you read the admiral's book and you decompose that operation, those indicators, those factors for success, uh, are are accounted for. Um, but short of that, so so let's stipulate that we're uh, we're moving out of the time window, uh, and the environment is such that uh, no matter how many uh, 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 intelligence assets, human intelligence assets, we try to exploit to get clear, unambiguous location of uh, of hostages and define those objectives, those targets, uh, in order to do the preparation work and and actually uh, conduct these sorts of raids, which are what they are, mm -hmm. um, that we're moving outside that window, um, their presence, the, the uh, Hamas holding those uh, non-combatant hostages, uh, is a, a major factor in any form of conventional ground incursion into Gaza. Uh, there are many other complicating factors. The fact that it's you know just probably the largest open air prison in the world, mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of the densest urban terrain on the planet. Um, you you quickly hit a point where is is this acceptable? Is are the level of casualties acceptable? Is the level of non combatant civilian casualties acceptable? when weighed against your ability to actually achieve a military objective. Right. Um, and this, again, comes back around to where where's the strategy? What do you want to try to get out of this? Um, sadly, um, you have uh, on the on the uh, on the Hamas side, a strategy based on uh, destroying the state of Israel. Right? Which is such a. I don't. I hate to use this term um, in a derogatory sense, but it, it, it in the definition of the term, it is a ridiculous objective. I think the that, obliteration of a nation. To to add, I guess, uh, some civility to that. It's it's their their optimism is outweighing their pragmatism. Like, yeah. yeah, that's yes. a very way to, good way to yeah, put it's, it because it's, it's the, unattainable. It's right. unattainable. It's unrealistic. Yeah, and on the flip side. If, uh, you know, Israel's stated strategic objective is uh, total destruction of Hamas, that's also right. probably unrealistic. And will lead you down a war crimes path. That Correct. You, you Correct. can't come walk away. However, the other factor to, to, uh, to weigh in here uh, is that, that concept of perceptions and the, the response of the international community. And sadly... On both sides, uh, both from the the side of of Hamas, uh, and to a degree, Israel, um, the perception is that we're already 
hated, excoriated, villainized by significant portions of the international community. Mm -hmm. So what can you do worse? You know, what's it really going to cost us? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that, that idea of, of uh, uh, deferred or absent consequences uh, is very dangerous here um, and can lead to, and I think will lead to at least some levels of uh, 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 unacceptable from a reciprocity uh, again an an end not endless but an ongoing conflict of indirect attrition mm -hmm. um the dangers now we we'll put the u.s on the table and the u.s is more on the table here uh than we've been uh mostly anywhere else to include ukraine in some time two carrier battle groups uh land-based air force assets um, and the 26th Mew, 2-6 uh, Marine Expedition. Well, then everybody who is on essentially yes, we have, packed yeah. up, ready to go, waiting for orders right, to, to right. take right. off. We've got some 2,000 other other specialties. Um, uh, and and when, you, when you dig into who those, who those specialties are from the conventional forces, you, you see sort of where our strategic uh lines of thinking go so it's it's about response mm -hmm. it's about uh, uh humanitarian assistance disaster medical relief course. medical medical engineering uh, uh to sort of deal with the uh emerging ongoing ever-growing humanitarian disaster um and and why why do we want to do that again getting back to our our strategic objectives there we want to stop the spread Sure. Right. This is about not allowing this crisis to broaden out uh, into the greater uh, the greater Middle East, um, and so you know focusing on the the immediate uh, uh, potential players there: uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, Hezbollah in in Lebanon, uh, their their backers and Hamas's backers in Iran, and then every other uh, uh, Arab country in the region. That has more or less um, uh, alliance with U.S., more or less of a moderate regime or a regime that's even in control of their own country. So when we look at you know the countries that border Lebanon, uh, has uh, minimal as a as a nation state has minimal control over its own territory because it has minimal control over Hezbollah, mm -hmm. um, and Hezbollah um, is is not. It's not just a, uh, a terrorist organization. It's a political party. Sure. Um, and it is fielded military forces, uh, uh, armored vehicles, rockets, artillery, uh, uh, essentially drones, uh, everything short of perhaps manned aircraft. Um, Syria, minimal control over its own territory right now. In fact, I think, you know, this is a, this is a crossover area. Um, uh, frankly, the Russians have more influence yep. over the Assad regime in Damascus right now than Assad himself does, uh, or his uh, or his uh, uh, Alawite followers. Um, so, uh, what's what's probably more troubling recently, and this is most recent, uh, are the uh, sort of the effects of perception and information war on uh, Jordan. Jordan. Which is a United States ally, uh, Egypt, which we have uh, again uh, economically economically normalized relations again, and this is all about who we pay and how we pay them um, in order to not make the problem worse, and then probably to a lesser degree, um, Fatah and the the uh, Palestinian Authority, uh, uh, led by Mahmoud Abbas, which which is the secular alternative to, to Hamas. Hamas. Yep. Um, uh, well, you know, especially because Jordan was such a key ally, uh, not only in our fight against the Daesh, but um, in really everything we were doing in Iraq against uh, AQI. Yes. Um, so. Well, and and uh, it's important. Jordan has Jordan uh, because of uh, their willingness and ability to uh, absorb Palestinian refugees, mm -hmm. wound up fighting their own civil war. Uh, uh, with those Palestinian refugees 
in in Jordan. So they've they've been they've got skin in the game. They've yeah. been directly yeah. affected by this entire situation. Um, and so our our desires, our strategic goals, are to prevent this spread from happening and actual presence of credible capabilities is one way that we do that. Um, the other way that we do that is by offering to uh, uh, financial resources to uh, cut deals. Uh, and then, you know, obviously diplomatically, but sadly, I think one of the, one of the, uh, uh, and, and there is no surprise to the timing here, um, you've had both King Abdullah and, uh, and Mahmoud Abbas and President uh, Sisi in Egypt now decline to meet with President yep. Biden uh, as he's in the Middle East. They're doing that in response to uh, the destruction of uh, this hospital in the Gaza Strip. And uh, again, what you know, the, the, this this is a potential tipping point. Um, you even have other organizations like Al Jazeera reporting that this probably wasn't an Israeli airstrike. It probably was something done by. But did Al Jazeera come? Al Jazeera has has yet. reported that now. Um, but but to clear the air, uh, and again, remember military capabilities, and you should think back to our time in uh, uh, in Iraq and, uh, and and elsewhere in Central Command. Um, there there's a tape running. Uh, there's there's video. And, and other information about what exactly was going on in the sky and on the ground. You have ISR assets and other command and control assets, and you can run the tape back to exactly, this was uh, uh, what we referred to in, uh, in CENTCOM, Sydney. Uh, Sydney was the, uh, the data system, the command and control system in, uh, in CENTCOM, and the old saying was, if it didn't happen in Sydney, it, it didn't, didn't happen. happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's similar capabilities in Israel, and it would behoove them perhaps to release some of that information to prove it wasn't us. Um, not releasing that information for whatever reason sadly plays into the hands of that information information operation to point the finger and say it was you. Yeah. And you're already committing war crimes. You're already doing what you said you wouldn't do. And this uh, ground operation uh, with or without hostages will be uh, uh, a... Um, uh, an extermination campaign, not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people yep. in Gaza. Right, right. Um, again, sadly, the Israeli military, their rhetoric uh, also underpins that. It's not helping. It's not. No, saying saying that the Palestinian residents of Gaza should, uh, you know, rise up and oppose Hamas, again, is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. We're talking about. Yeah. You know, unarmed, unarmed civilian population, um, really wholly uh, controlled by an armed terrorist organization. Terrorist organization. Yeah. I use the example of an open air prison. It's a, a massive, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of prisoners in an open air prison. But that prison is controlled by the largest prison gang right. uh, uh, that uh, that that they have arms and and capabilities. So, um, again, looking towards this and what, what potential solutions are there, because even, even a successful, let's, let's put on our, uh, our uh, imagination caps and imagine what a successful ground campaign, you know, would look like. From either side. From, from the U.S.-Israel side. I see, okay. And perhaps from every side except Hamas. Uh, okay. Although, not we'll 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 touch on that. Um, so uh, either either sequentially or near sequentially, uh, rescue of a a plurality of hostages, um, followed by uh, sadly street to street fighting, but with restraint and with uh, uh, assistance following close behind it. Uh, similar in some ways in some ways to what uh, occurred in Fallujah, yeah, yeah. But, but sequenced closer um, to relieve some of that humanitarian uh, impact, uh, backed by regional Arab states and the U.S. to bring aid in yeah, Egypt through allowing, Egypt, opening, right. opening the Rafah crossing, yeah. allowing refugees to leave. Uh, because if you're just sort of the average 
Palestinian resident of Gaza, your question is, where do you want me to go? Right. <laughs> I and really it, and can't go anywhere. It's the Fluji, um analogy, and it's obviously very different, so I'm yes. oversimplifying. But there were days that we, as the put as the upcoming offensive force, were allowing non-combatants to leave. Right. My, my point is, even if we stipulate all those um, uh, restrained or uh, a balanced uh, factors are, are involved in a Israeli ground campaign, the aftermath is still destabilizing and uh, ongoing, potentially not, not ending for the government of Israel and its military. You, you are now creating a new problem with with that territory, um, you're not going to completely eradicate Hamas. You're going to take away potentially some of their uh, uh, military capabilities, but they're not going to go away as a political party. You won't kill the ideology. You won't kill the ideology, which is the Islamic version of Palestinian nationalism, as opposed to Fatah, which is the secular version. Um, and you're not going to you're potentially only going to exacerbate the um, uh, uh, resourcing of Hamas through other players, legitimate and illegitimate. Um, and when I say legitimate, Israel and Qatar and other countries have legitimately assisted. Israel itself has assisted Hamas and the uh, the Palestinian population of Gaza um, uh, financially. So, so you now create a, a vacuum there. Um, so if it were not to come to that, what would it take, uh, solution wise for it to not come to that? And, and unfortunately it seems to, at this point, hinge on, um, releasing those hostages. If Hamas were to release the hostages and then Israel in turn would say, okay, we're going to lift the siege, meaning turn your power, water back on, start providing more food and, uh, and medical assistance, and go to the negotiating table, again, to start looking at a, a nonviolent solution. Um, that, again, may, may be pie in the sky, but there is a path towards uh, further stabilization. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we, sadly, again, we are in a we're in a wait and see, and I think the wait and sees are going to be um, number one: uh, what goes on with the Palestinian population of the West Bank, uh, which is which is led by that that uh, more sectarian uh, uh, branch of uh, the Palestinian Authority called called Fatah. What goes on with um, other actors in Lebanon and Syria, specifically Hezbollah? What starts or continues to go on in um, cities around the world uh, with regard to Israeli and U.S. embassies, um, everywhere from uh, from Amman, Jordan, to uh, to Cairo, to Istanbul or Ankara, um, we're starting to see more violent protests against Israel's presence and the United States' presence, um, and then uh, by by extension. Uh, and as as uh, as uh, you know, inflammatory or inflamed by the media as it is, what continues to go on here in the United States? Um, and and uh, well, because every pontificator, social media influencer has a thirty-second hot take. That's right, and that's that's not right. Helping. It's it's not helpful at all. It's not it's not controllable at all. Right. Um. But but sadly, particularly broadcast media by picking up these stories, accelerates the damage, um, makes it seem to the, uh, to the casual observer that, that this is becoming very widespread and very dangerous, when in, in reality it's, it's sort of the same fringe that came out after 9-11 and said that we were responsible for al-Qaeda's attacks on the, on the World Trade Center, uh, that our policies in the Middle East, our support of Israel is what, what brought that about. Um, that's just illogical, ludicrous on its face. Um, the well, classic so, two wrongs don't make a right. Sure. But I guess to follow that thread of 9-11, um, from our own recent history, when we look back on our 20-plus years um, involved, and 
when now we overlay that, as you mentioned earlier, onto this current environment, and we look at what's the exit strategy, what's that potential end game, because you could very well find yourself two decades later looking back and going, what did we actually accomplish? Right. So let's let's think about that for a second. If this had not occurred, what would be proceeding right now? Um, one of the things that, that has taken a backseat is uh, an ongoing actions of what are what are you know have popularly been referred to as the Abraham Accords. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the next step and what was what was on the table uh, was uh, negotiating uh, with between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yep. Um, you know, UAE normalized relations with Qatar, Israel. Yes, uh, UAE normalized a number of other uh, uh, of the uh, wealthier Arab states normalized and they normalized as you would expect primarily from an economic perspective exactly there's interesting you know history internationally there as well we can look at the eu goods bads and others as a successful regional transnational organization it started as an economic organization ultimately it started as uh, uh agreements on setting the prices of natural resources coal, iron, uh, those, those sorts of resources between a group of European countries, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Germany, that grew from an economic base to a diplomatic base to a military base. Um, that's the long game of the Abraham Accords. Start by normalizing economically. Everyone benefits from that. Uh, expand it to... Uh, uh, the uh, more resource poor states in the region, but let's let's imagine again success in that regard. Normalized relations, uh, perhaps some bilateral or multilateral treaties between Arab states, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, Oman, UAE, Qatar, Bahrain, Israel. Um, What's the unintended consequence? One of the unintended consequences is a now more regionally hegemonic perceived threat by Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because for one thing, we're talking all Sunni states. All Sunni states, all majority Arab, Arab states. states yeah. Iran. And super wealthy states. Yes. Iran, not super wealthy. No. Although she- it could be. Shia. Uh, Shia and uh, Persian, uh, majority Persian. And a theocracy. Yes. yes. So not, not anywhere close to a democracy. And again, we're talking about the governments of these countries. We're not talking about individual people or, or, or you know, the population, uh, which, which is a problem in and of itself when the government does not represent or account for the interests of its people. Um, in some ways, you have Gaza and Hamas. Um, they are they are serving their own agenda, their own purposes, with uh, no real thought to the impact on Palestinians living in Gaza, mm-hmm. um, who are effectively now trapped. So, um, if there if there is an outcome to this, eventually that outcome has to account for um, balancing relations with Iran. And with Iran's proxies, who are some of the most uh, uh, difficult players in this in this whole drama, uh, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's the the government of Syria, um, whether it's Islamic Jihad, um, and you you mentioned twenty years of this. It's actually more like forty because the last time U.S. Marines had to deal right, it is with, absolutely yeah, it was 40. it was uh, Islamic Jihad that. Next took, week took, is the 40th exactly that took yep. responsibility for the bombing of the Beirut barracks and the bombing of the of the uh, French mission in uh, in the multinational force in Lebanon. So, um, this 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 story has been going on for quite a long time. It's um, sadly just another chapter in it. I don't think we're going to see any real um, uh, decisive resolution at the end of this. Um, and the closer we get to that, the worse it's going to be for one side or the other. 
Well, sir, thank you for coming on the show again to explain these delicate and interesting situations going on abroad. We wish that all of our Marines pay attention to this. Send in articles. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of good material for you to write on. The, uh, the character of war is changing. The uh, Marines are, uh, are going to be at the forefront of any uh, future excursion should it involve the United States. So please pay attention to all of the Americans out there who are uh, potentially influenced by any of these events. We send you our best wishes. And uh, again, sir, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, tune in again to uh, more episodes of Scuttlebutt. All right. Signing off. Bye. Bye. The Marine Corps requires leaders of all ranks to have a deep understanding of war and the employment of force. MCDP-1 reminds Marines that the military profession is a thinking profession. Every Marine is expected to be a student of the art and science of war. It goes on to say that every Marine has an individual responsibility to study the profession of arms. Self-directed study in the art and science of war is at least equal in importance to maintaining physical condition and should receive at least equal time. The Marine Corps Association understands the critical importance of ensuring that Marines are as mentally ready for combat as they are physically ready. That is why we offer an entire page dedicated to wargaming on our website. We have recommendations for both tabletop board games as well as computer games. And for Marine Corps Association members, there is a discount code for Wargame Design Studios that you can find on the website. War games are a great way to immerse yourself in history and to put yourself in the shoes of the great leaders of history. Go beyond guided instruction and experience the thrill of wargaming. Check us out at mca-marines.org forward slash decision dash making dash exercises forward slash wargaming dash two. That's mca-marines.org forward slash decision dash making dash exercises forward slash wargaming dash two. Take your training to the next level. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.